This is Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the personal journeys of innovators and change makers. We talk to the doers and thinkers of our time to understand what motivates them and why they do what they do. Brought to you by your hosts, Anne and Strajit, and the entire CDTM podcast team in Munich. Whenever we hear stories about living an almost nomadic life, we typically have a picture of a backpacker in mind, traveling the world. For our guest of today's episode, Maya Hari, this is the way she described how she spent her 20s working in India, the US, France, as well as Singapore. But of course, Maya is not a typical backpacker. She studied engineering and did an MBA at INSERT. Afterwards, she worked at some of the most renowned tech companies like Cisco, Google, Microsoft, and was also VP of Global Strategy and Operations at Twitter. Throughout this episode, we will have the opportunity to follow Maya on her journey. We will learn about her early decisions and how her international experiences shaped her. Afterwards, we will talk about what she learned from founding an e-commerce platform, while the whole concept of e-commerce was still in its infancy in India, and how she tackled being a mother at the same time. Finally, we're happy to get insights from working at Twitter and discuss the current state of online media. After this impressive journey, we're looking forward to a very special personal toolbox in the end. Hi, Maya. We're delighted to have you on the podcast today. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's start at the beginning of your journey. You yourself have described your 20s as almost nomadic life, living in India, the US, France, as well as Singapore. So how come? What were you looking for at the time? I don't know. I think I was looking for adventure. I was chasing this dream of sort of being this global person that could understand different cultures, different countries and experiences. And frankly, I was also at a life stage where I could do that easily. I, I didn't have kids and I was I was married and you know my husband and I both were very interested in sort of pursuing both professional adventures and personal adventures. So it fit really well in terms of goals there. I often describe the end result of the 20s and having a nomadic life as sort of saying anywhere in the world I could meet someone and it is like six degrees of separation. It's six seconds of trying to find something in common between us. And it's it's something that I've really enjoyed and, you know, hold close to my heart now. Was there anything that is now completely different? It's like something that changed 180 degrees after that time for you? Geographically, I'm definitely much more committed now and have sort of set roots in Singapore and, and, and I'm definitely based out of here. So that's that's certainly changed. But what has, has not changed in some ways is the outlook of being global and of being quite internationally minded. And therefore, the career choices that I make tend to also be seeking out that type of globalism and international point of view. So that there's, there's all these strengths that I've built in knowing global cultures and it's an ability to be able to pull from that. So Maya, you have a background in engineering before you transitioned into management and to be specific marketing and general management roles after you completed your master's in electrical engineering. Why did you make this transition? Well, it's a very funny story that the transition was not necessarily my plan originally. I did my bachelor's and master's in engineering and I was headlong in love with signal processing, image processing, voice processing. So I was really thinking about which parts of this that I'm going to sort of dive deep into. And in engineering college, on-campus interviews were going on for, for different types of jobs. And I was experimenting and meeting different companies. And a recruiter sort of pointed out to me that my way of describing technology and what I did and what I knew to him, you know, was quite unique. And he thought this would really put me in an interesting spot in being able to translate back and forth between what customer's voice says to what product and engineering needed to do. And look, I was straight out of school at that point. And I was like, okay, you think that would be interesting? Let's let's go give it a try. And it ended up becoming something that really, truly differentiated me over time. So I made my way to marketing over time. But really, the, the strength was always to be in technology and to be in that place of interface between product and customer and, and to be able to translate the needs of the customer and the voice of the customer back and forth to the product and engineering teams. 
were you at any point worried that you're going to lose the tech focus you're going to lose these skills that you've uh, spent a lot of study hours acquiring i think that there was a real concern for a period of time i always thought at some point in my career i would go from depth to breadth but i didn't anticipate that i would do that straight in the beginning of the career in retrospect now looking back i think there's no one way to building your career or building building a path to success there's not one recipe to success it worked really well for me to be able to be that person that could understand adequate depths and yet sort of be able to hold breath together and i've been someone who has geeked out on technology and has loved knowing the details for for a long time even today if you ask me the products that i represent the companies that i work with i tend to be someone who can go deep and dive into product to a certain extent and that helps me feel credible being in technology but no one path or no one you know set path to success in some ways i guess you can chart your own path with the options and it certainly worked well for me so one thing i wonder about is as i'm kind of in the same situation as you are right just uh, a few years <laughs> earlier in my career and i've also moved from being a hardware engineer to to being very broad and uh, many people have called me a generalist and that is not often a compliment right <laughs> so do you think that generalists will be required and needed in the future or do you think that we need more deep technical expertise in the next coming years i honestly think you need both if someone called me a generalist by the way and i would take it as a compliment because i was surrounded by such a whole bunch of people who were constantly trying to get to general management right and that's inclusive of product and inclusive of technology because if you're working in any any fields that touches technology you know being savvy in that is important too i would take it as a compliment i i would absolutely turn that mirror around and and take it that way but i i think there's a need for for both and i you know i th i think a lot about you know you need people who can envision and see the long term view you need people who can see you know beyond around the corners you need to see beyond the 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 little problem that you're solving to say what other problems can this connect to or if you solve this problem you might actually create value and opportunity on multiple levels and those are the breadth thinkers and the generalists if you will and then once you have that you also need the specialists who can say you know what i can get to the best quality of code that's written or the best scientific approach to getting alternative protein or whatever that might be and so i think the answer to the world is is room for both and i think either one of those is a compliment so i have recently been observing a lot of mutual disrespect between the the generalists and the specialists they both hate, hate each other in in equal amounts and they they have their reasons for dis detesting each other but but maybe i'm i'm just hanging around with very young people who are hot blooded and, and they have uh, very strong opinions how is it moving forward with your career how is how is the experience of say a cto who is deeply focused on tech versus somebody who is more of a generalist is there mutual respect is there some degree of disrespect as well i think there's a lot of difference of opinion very often on how to do things and how to do things well between a generalist and a specialist and i'll give you an example of you know less than a decade ago there was a role that i was in at samsung where i was leading a product and a business unit and i had a partner in crime who was the cto and the the chief data uh, architect in some ways and he had his teams and i had my teams and we had to come together and really collaborate on taking the vision taking the needs of the business and being able to build around that beyond definition of product um his name is memoz and he's based in london now and still great friends with him and he and i would always have an agreement uh, that we would come together and break bread at the end of the day and th the reason for breaking bread is that you can you you pre-agreed that you will have difference of opinion it's constructive criticism of each other's points of view but you have a way of sort of washing that through and whether you're young and hot blooded or slightly more mature you know in in life stage that we were but you can create that systemically and say we will disagree but we will come together and the minute we break bread together or the equivalent of that have a beer together whatever that might be you're sort of resetting that equation and saying listen we've topped up on trust with each other So I think there's some value to systemically templatizing some of these things because 
you know for sure you're going to have difference of opinion. And that's actually good for the business. If you all thought alike, and if we all thought alike, then we're probably not stress testing the needs of what product needs to be built. I think this is such a nice and also hilarious opinion because uh, actually a few weeks ago, we found this bottle of champagne in the kitchen. And then we said, okay, when do we drink it? And we said, we keep it for a real serious argument. And it's actually super nice because, as you said, with breaking bread, which is the, the healthy option, of course, is you agree that there's going to be a comeback from whatever happens. And it totally changes also your mindset towards arguments and towards discussion. So I'm really fascinated that you've also come up with the same approach in business and it's something I've actually never thought about. I think it's always nice to look forward to a bottle of champagne. So <laughs> you're like, you're saying disagreements, bring it on. So talk to us a bit more about your superpower of explaining technology to people who don't understand it. And I'm curious about, was that something you were aware of before or did really that person for the first time ever bring it up and you were like, oh, that's a, that's a strength, right? I don't think I consciously phrased it that way as a strength before, before that person actually told me that. But growing up, when I had to make decisions on what I'd start to study, There were some clues in there. I was distraught trying to make a decision between journalism and engineering. Those are not two completely allied fields. And, and by the way, there were no interdisciplinary programs back then, right? So here were seemingly two very different fields of studies that I wanted to pursue, one very analytical and the other one very focused around really the, the spoken word, the written word, the art of communication in some ways, or the art of storytelling and narrative. And so that could have given me a clue about, you know, why this strength would come about later in life. There were clues there and the articulation of it and the observation of it was very powerful by this recruiter who came on, on campus. And then I think after that, what was very interesting is for me to acknowledge and hold that and store that always as that's my superpower. So let me play to my strength was something that was a bit more conscious on my part, right? And so being able to find companies and roles that would allow me to harness that power, put me in a position of strength to unlock that was, was something that was a bit more conscious over the years. So maybe do we need to redefine what a strength is? Because in the past, sometimes I thought, okay, like this is something I'm good at, so it's my strength. And maybe we have to rephrase it in a way that we say, it is something that we're not even aware of that we're good at, right? Because this is where we excel. You're not aware of it but you're so great at it that it comes easily to you. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. And one way to systemically discover strengths and strengths also change, you know, over the years, but surrounding yourself with people who have good curiosity, good observation power, and people who can share wavelengths with you is actually very important. So the people you construct and surround yourself with is, is useful. But I also think on a related but different vein, People who can disagree with you and tell you to your face what your weaknesses are too is is in, is incredibly important, right? So that you you know not just your strengths, but you also know your blind spots. Then you can absolutely architect your career and your life to your strengths and avoid stepping into things that really need your area of weakness to be your strength. So in the year 2005, you did, did something that became notoriously controversial over the year. You went for an MBA and you were at NCR. At that time, maybe it, it seemed like a complete no-brainer. It's a great program. You get to learn a lot of things. But over the years, people have argued that the value of uh, the MBA as, as a degree, as a program has been waning. And I want to get your sense on this. I think the MBA is evolving I absolutely loved being in the MBA program. Part of that was just being able to meet people from very, very vast and different faculties and areas of work and be able to share an opinion, be able to debate that and really open the point of view to be much wider than what I was used to. The second part of it was just basic functional skills, right? I, I picked up much more understanding of finance. I, I deepened my knowledge of entrepreneurship, building a business plan, things like that. But the third thing, which was sort of, you know, well talked about hidden pillar is sort of building a network and choosing the school that gives you the kind of network you want. And for me, the the fact that I wanted to have a global and international career meant that I, I was I had picked INSEAD and had therefore a very internationally wide representation of people. Now, fast forward 15 years later, I was managing a team out of Singapore, which was very international across many markets, including Latin America, had a team in Brazil, 
And one of my Brazilian team leaders came to me and said, listen, Maya, there's this lady in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, who I respect a ton. I'd love for her to be a mentor. I don't know how to get to her. And literally the first network I thought of was my business school network and said, hey, someone, can you connect me to this person in the industry? Three days later, the connection was made and and here's me sitting in Singapore, not being in Sao Paulo in person, but being able to add value to someone on my team to create that delight, to be able to create that feeling of meeting someone who they really cared about as a mentor. So I think these are things that I can't put a, a specific, you know, description on, but but it's part and parcel of the MBA experience in addition to the functional skills and everything else. And there are people that are part of that group that I still learn from today. You know, I need a point of view on something that's a specific area. There's, there's a network to call. So I think there's the curriculum of the program and then there's the the network. I think to say a little bit more about the evolution of the MBA you do see a lot more specifics, the specifics of the MBA starting to evolve. Over the years, I've seen schools sort of start to think about social media, policy, privacy, a lot more than they did when I was in in business school. I see today business schools thinking about purpose and business as a force for good, which we didn't think about. So it's good to also see the program evolve. It's good to see programs think more about product managers and you know, the roles and functions that they are enabling for people to go do after the MBA. So evolution's good. I'm a fan. I've benefited from the MBA program, for sure. I was part of an interesting conversation lately where, uh, and we surround ourselves with startup founders and entrepreneurs, where somebody said that, hey, the MBA is an uh, an expensive program. And uh, the 200K that you would end up spending on, let's say, an American MBA you could potentially use that as pre-seed funding for your startup and then get all the learnings that you would typically get from an MBA while working on your own startup. And who knows, that could flourish into a successful company. I just want to get your opinion on this as well. Does this make sense or are we completely off the rails with this? I, th- I think it's a great idea to go do potentially a, a seed stage funding, take the MBA money and go put it in there. It depends if you have a good idea, if you have the recipe to be able to go build something. And if you have the fire in the belly to go take that idea to market. If you don't, then an MBA is a good alternate path to go do some discovery, to do some pivoting, things like that. I've been a founder at one point and I just couldn't wait any longer to try my idea and get it to see day, daylight. If if there is a person in th- that stage and that phase, it absolutely makes sense to go give it a try. MBA is not the only path to success. Right. And this is a good point in time for us to talk a bit about your experience as a founder. So to all our listeners, Maya founded this company called uh, Stylekist in India, uh, which was a contemporary decor e-commerce company. And this was back in 2009. How did this decision come about? You were in a stable corporate job. You were flourishing in your career. How did you decide that that you want to try out founding? And another follow-up, were you a full-time founder or were you also working alongside in a job? So I was a full-time founder, although I built the product in stealth a little bit in advance, right, over the weekends and sort of stringing it together. But I was a full-time founder. I was a solo founder. And the reason this came about was really having lived in the U.S. in the past and having been an avid e-com shopper. After moving to India, I found that there were lack of options in the market for similar experiences. And it sort of showed me that there was this wave that was very likely to come and could I build something with the expertise of what I had seen in a different market and could I bring that to market soon enough, right? And so that was the idea. Why contemporary decor and why why gifting? And he just felt like there was an opportunity to bring design and manufacturing capabilities together, but put it on a digital platform and discovery. So that's that's the reason for the founding. It's one of those experiences that I absolutely enjoyed. It's the first time I built a product. I also say you're sort of the peon to the CEO all rolled up into one. So it's also a very fun experience to to be absolutely humbled and yet to sort of turn around and make sure that you're you're opening up the office in the morning, but then turning around and meeting a CEO the next part of the day. So it's very versatile, makes you very versatile and keeps you very humble on your toes. So So a wonderful experience, not necessarily a successful one for me. I scaled it to a point, but ended up sort of facing a funding crisis at some point because it was the timing was really tough. Lehman Brothers had happened around the world and VCs had pulled their term sheets, etc. But I wouldn't trade it for a minute. It was an incredible learning journey. You often talk about learning by doing. And this was the way I learned to build product. This was the way I learned to 
talk to customers and be able to think about how do you build good customer experience. So cherish it a ton, but didn't necessarily think that I succeeded there. Looking into the launch of your company, the day before, at least that's what I've read online, you found out that you were expecting your first child and you had to delay the company launch. And I wonder how you managed to do that, because I think for many other women that have, would have been the point where you say, this is the sign to, to stop or to do something else. What was going in your mind and were you set on going back to founding, especially as a solo founder? I had such a crisis moment when that happened. I asked myself the same questions you referenced, like, is this a sign that I shouldn't do it? Is this even the right idea? And you you have trepidation when you leave a big job and sort of go do a founding moment anyway. But I, I just needed time. I needed time to sort out my emotions and my head and heart and needed to figure out what I wanted to do next. And, and t adding time always helps, right, in, in any moment of crisis. But I think when time passed and I still came back and said, listen, I still feel like I need to try this. If I don't try it, I feel like my head will explode. It's a good sign that, listen, there's no other option. I, I can't be walking around with an exploded head. And so was it perfect timing? No, because, you know, I had two babies all at once and lots of strife on both sides, adapting to being an entrepreneur and adapting to being a mom. But But I don't regret it. But I would say that people didn't necessarily understand that this was a choice that I made for me professionally. You know, some people thought hey, it must be easy to just do something on the side while you had a baby, you know, and, and keep yourself busy like a, like a cute thing you're doing. Nothing pissed me off more than that when, when someone said that to me because I knew how hard it was not necessarily having the benefit of, of a relaxed maternity leave, if you will, or a parental leave. So that people's opinions can be people's opinions. But but yeah, it was it was hard, but good. And you know, you don't want to trade it off if you still feel like you really want it bad. I think it's amazing how you manage that. And I think it's also fascinating how sometimes people who don't have children then treat everything that you, you do and you aspire to do as if it was the, the pottery course that you were doing to relax. Well, it's actually your career, right? And it's the same career that you had before. Although to be honest, not having children, but I would assume that it is probably never the same as before because you are having children and they don't go away. So they stay with you, hopefully, for the rest of your life. And I wonder how would you say has your career changed through that before and after? And how has your personal life changed? Because I think it must be very difficult to be a mom, a leader, and then also Maya somewhere in between, right? Yeah, it's a good question. One of the things that I, I never thought I would trade off and never needed to trade off, never gave myself a choice to trade off, was my own ambition in my career. But it did mean that the mom that my kids got from day one was wired that way. So they have not seen anything different. They have not known anything different. And, and, and so their experience is built like that. So they've learned to adapt to having dual parents who are working and things like that. You know, I took it for granted that that's what I would do. And it meant that we had to architect our life differently post having kids. We had to figure out who would feed the kid if I was, you know, in commute back in the days when we had commutes. And, and I was delayed, right? How, how would we manage between my husband and I? And, and I think the thing that has really worked for me is having really a very equal partner in the personal life to be able to enable that ability and freedom to be able to go build uh, the professional life. But I think the things that do change are that you do have this factor to solve for. I, I couldn't do business trips that were super long because I just didn't want to be away from the kids over the weekends. So I would architect my entire travel patterns. I called myself for many years, I called myself the queen of day trips. So the longest day trip I did was 18 hour trip back and forth for a three hour meeting in Australia from Singapore to Australia to back. And you do these things and you're happy to do these things. Every flight I would take would be a red eye for many years. Why? Because I would tell the kids that, oh, I'm here. I'm just gone for a day tomorrow and I'll be back tomorrow night. But I'd put them to bed at 8 p.m. and then run to the airport. And I had, in my mind, very happily cheated them from knowing that I had left the previous night, right? So they only knew that I, I, I was out for a day. But you do these sort of things, and I was happy to do these things in order to be able to preserve the dream. Now, over the years, though, I started to realize, and you asked the question very nicely, Anne, because it's the, the piece that I missed for many years was the space for me because I had made sure that I, there was space for the kids and that there was space for the career. 
And so rediscovering the space for me was my big learning and took me a long time to get to. And honestly, only got to it the last few years, right? So I, I hope for anybody that listens to this or for people who are architecting their lives differently today is to make trade-offs, keeping all three in mind uh, and hopefully not have to make as many tough trade-offs. Hopefully travel less now that we have proven to the world that we can actually work remotely much more effectively than before. I'm super glad that you're so open about this topic because sometimes I feel like women tend to I don't want to say pretend, but they try to say, well, I have a career, I am a great mom, and I'm also very happy. But what we don't talk about is, well, it's actually hard to to have all three and to do all three and to still be yourself in the middle. And there's a lot of work involved. And one thing I also wanted to ask you is the less glamorous part. So the before part, the, the giving birth part, the the thing nobody wants to talk about when you're 35 female and joining a company, every, every HR person will not want to ask, but they do want to ask, are you planning having children? And then when young female talents join the consulting space, for instance, today egg freezing comes up as a work perk. What do you think about that? And what do you think about really architecting your career and then architecting your family choice around your career at the same time? You know, I, I have to say there's been once in my career I've actually been asked quite openly whether I, I plan to have a baby. Uh, and it was in a country where it's legal. There's no legal implication of asking that, uh, which is interesting. And, and I actually stopped. I was so shocked having been asked that question. I, I said, don't you think I should talk about this with my husband first before you and I discuss me having kids? Like, I think there's a prerequisite that he has half a decision in this as well. And we laughed it off, but it really worried me about what this signaled for people and how they made decisions. And I, I'd say about 10 years later, I was hiring uh, a team at Twitter. And it was, a, it was a really interesting moment I remembered because I was ready to make an offer to someone. And before I told her that I was making an offer, She actually told me, I do need to tell you that I am expecting a baby and I'm three months along. And it was this moment where I sort of stepped back and said, okay, now what is the decision to be made? And thank God for that experience that I had being asked whether I would have a baby and what that would do for their decision making. I was like, shame on me if I don't do better than that. Right. And so we made the offer. We hired this person into the company, which was amazing. But now this is not a very unique story. Today, if you see, there are lots of people in and around the spaces that I've worked in where people are being hired despite being transparent about their child rearing plans. So that's one that has been really interesting to see that that needle has started moving. I think things like egg freezing should be absolutely available as a choice, but you know, but without the societal pressure to decide what's right for someone, right? If a person does want to sequence their life differently, they should be able to. But at the same time, it should be their choice to make without the pressure of societal expectation or corporate expectation. So that's my wish for the future, whether that's a perk from the company, whether that's good or not. If it enables free choice, I'm all for it. If it puts pressure on a person, maybe that the positioning of that needs to be thought through carefully. Continuing on this topic of planning your career and career progression. So in Germany, people traditionally, especially in larger companies, they tend to stay on as employees for very long periods. Very often I come across people who've been working at the same company for the last 15 years, and they're working as traditional knowledge workers like you and I. But I know that that is not so common, let's say in India and even in the US, for instance. How do you make this decision that, you know, now it's time for me to move on? What are the factors that you consider and, and how do you go about doing it? I think industry has a large part to play in this, Rajit. I think the evolution of digital industry in the last few years is is the backdrop of how I made my choices, right? And I actually have worked for several companies during my, my 22 years of, of the career so far. So I have definitely benefited from being able to dip into experiences everywhere. And I think the, the foundation of the thinking is that whether you're in one company or in multiple companies, the lifetime of a role is roughly about 18 to 24 months, maybe a little bit more than that. So if you're spending eight years in a company, you're still likely in the digital and technology world to be able to cycle through a few different roles within those eight years. Now, whether you do those roles in one company or in different companies is the choice to make. What I found is that technology and digital evolved so much over the period from the early 2000s, you know, post dot com bust to where we are today, 
that you had this whole wave of web, you had the wave of e-commerce, you had the wave of mobile, local, social, that for me, being able to do different roles was a great learning journey to be able to pick up that evolution of technology. The phase that we're in now with digital and technology may be a little bit different, right? Because you you now, for the first time, have companies that are Google's 20 years old now, Twitter's 15 years old, right? For the first time, these companies are out in, in the double digits and sort of looking more like mature companies. So that phase could be a lot different now too. But I think what's more important is to think about how do you create learning experiences to keep yourself current? Picking jobs and doing that through that is one way to do it, but you could do it many other ways too. And so so I, I think that's that's really the decision point is where if you feel stale, at least for me, if I feel stale and if I feel like I've stopped learning, then that starts to be the point where I'm like, what can I do to learn or experience something different? Your corporate journey has been much longer than your startup journey. And we have a whole section dedicated to questions about your experience in the corporate world. But even before that, let's let's talk about your experience at Stylekist as a venture founder. So Stylekist was founded in 2008 and it stayed operational till 2010. And it's not operational anymore. So obviously at some point you decided to pull the plug on it. Why did you have to take that decision? And what was that experience like to shut down the operations of uh, your own venture? The love for Stylekist was two things. It was being able to bring great design at accessible prices, but to be able to do that via e-commerce and be able to create access to these types of products across many cities, many geographies, both in India as well as in the US. So that was the idea. And that's the journey that we were on. What was most exciting about that journey is that the very first orders that we received online were from very small towns in India. And so these were not where you expected orders to come from. So it was Guwahati, it was Tirupati, it was Raibareli. It was towns that you would never expect and people didn't have credit cards, but they would mail in the check and they would email to confirm that everything was fine. And it was amazing to see. So it proved this this early notion that access itself is a is a big part of the story in the early digital days of a country which we were in at the time and then over time you had the big cities as you would expect sort of be the main centers of demand now e-commerce was still young at the time and so very quickly what we did was start to do store in store pop-up stores so worked with stores like uh, Marks and Spencers in India and Shop to Stop in India and said okay how do we how do we now have these pop-up stores with a dot com brand so that you buy something you experience it offline and then you discover the dot com brand and you come in and buy online but it was always to enable this online experience that was the dream very quickly the offline part of the revenue became so much larger than the online part of the revenue that the way i spent my time as a founder was very different than what i imagined and so this was really the thing that was unexpected in the business and then came the funding crisis which at some point if you wanted to really do well online you had to market yourself and be able to drive demand for it so it didn't go as expected. I wasn't doing what I loved ultimately, which is counterintuitive to why you set up your own company anyway. And so we decided to pull the plug. We sold the assets to a competitor and pulled the plug. But the decision to pull the plug was quite controversial. I was surrounded by people, both family and friends, who have been entrepreneurs, who are diehard entrepreneurs, who live the dream and don't give up on the dream for decades on end. And and to them, people like me looked like, what are you doing? Why are you pulling the plug so quickly? Why would you not pivot and pivot and pivot and try again? And for me at the time, right or wrong is debatable, but it felt like there was an opportunity cost to my time as a founder. And pulling the plug is always the hardest thing to do for a founder. I, I am a big believer now in retrospect to say, if you get to product market fit at quick scale and you hit escape velocity, that's fantastic. If you don't hit escape velocity, you need to have a plan that says, what do you want to do with your time and how do you want to have impact in your life? And for me, the fact that I didn't get to scalable product market fit, that's the honest truth, right? And whether it's timing, it's funding, but that was the truth. And so I think the best thing for me was to actually walk away from that point. And it's the toughest decision to do because it's your baby. But it's the one that I think I benefited from because there were so many other things I wanted to impact in life. I think the lesson I learned was the ability to walk away from something you've created, the ability to acknowledge that, listen, you've not got product market fit. 
is equally important to figuring out how to pivot and how to get to product market fit. That's my approach, at least. That's what I did with the founding experience. And and since you mentioned that it's a niche that you might get back to, and I'm pretty sure that you've been following the news about the e-commerce industry worldwide and specifically also in India, there have been so many new business models that uh, that have evolved in the e-commerce space itself. There's the Shopify model. Now there's Amazon, which is much larger. How would you do things differently if you were to do it in the e-commerce industry? I think e-commerce is a joyful place today. You have so much choice, so much variety. I think there's social commerce and there is the ability to have, you know, integrated omni-channel experiences. So I think you could do it many different ways today. The thing is that you need to really find how do you get product market fit in a differentiated way? How do you build the moat around you? Because the last thing I would want to do today if I was starting an e-commerce business is to be in a competitive space and burn money trying to win a consumer with promotions and trying to beat on price. So that's the thing I would avoid doing today. With my skills, I would sort of knowing social media well, I think using social commerce as a way to step into things would be super interesting. But I also am a big fan of subscription models because you acquire once and then you're sort of building a a relationship for many times in a go. So if I were to start something today, I would look at subscription models with a big social discovery component to it. Now, after looking at your potential entrepreneurial comeback, let's talk a bit about all the impact that you had at Twitter and at Big Tech. So one question that many students probably have right now is they know what a day of a product manager looks like. They know what a day of a software engineer looks like. But what does the day of a VP at Twitter actually look like? What do you do all day? I want to say not much compared to product. But no, in all honesty, the transition becomes from owning a project to owning strategy. And the transition goes from managing a team to managing an organization. These are the two big differences from more functional roles to to larger generalist roles, if you will. And I think a large proportion of time goes into thinking about structure of the organization, goals and vision that you lay out for the company, and the trajectory of is the day-to-day cadence of the business lining up to the long-term goals of the company. So this is lots of meetings, trying to be efficient with your time getting communication and cross-functional collaboration to be really strong and trying to keep a balance between blinders on in-company perspective with the outside-in perspective, which is incredibly important too. So you, you really do elevate out of specific functions and you start to think about how do you connect the dots in the organization far more or connect the dots to customers far more. So you spend time very differently in some ways. It's much more broad. And different leaders, uh, a VP at Twitter, who's me versus another VP at Twitter, would choose to spend their time, distribute their time differently among all of these activities I told you about. You still have a chance to navigate more to your strengths within the wide remit. So I would assume that as a VP, there are certain things you can decide to shape or you decide not to shape them and tackle something else. And if you could condense your VP time, what was your, your signature thing? The one thing that you're proud of that you achieved during that time? Well, I think the one thing is developing people because you are how good your organization is and how good your people are and how outsized their results look like. So developing people, finding people who are fit for purpose for a role, whether they know that they would be amazing at it or not, but trying to be able to architect an organization and architect the skills of the people and bring that together. I think that's the thing that I'm most proud of. It's something that came naturally to me. It's something I was very passionate about and I spent a whole lot of time on. You mentioned about transitioning from uh, skills that are required for managing an organization. What are some other skills that are you know, core skills in order to be a member of the C-suit in these large organizations in the big tech? I think the one key thing that every C-level has to do is also be master of prioritization. And Anne referred to this a little bit before, which is choosing what you do is is important, but choosing what you don't do is almost even more important. What you leave out actually makes what you leave in better. So I think prioritization, whether it's prioritization of a roadmap or it's prioritization of projects or, you know, how you build revenue, whatever that might be, prioritization is a big skill. And being able to manage people is a big skill. And I think other than that, 
thinking about strategy, thinking about decisions and bets you would make on where the business will go is a very big part of being in the C-level in an organization. So for, for people like me, it gets a little easier to imagine things when I'm thinking about them in terms of tangibles. So I've, I've been a software engineer, I've been a product manager, I've always had a physical object that I've produced as part of my work, whether it's a working piece of code or a product requirements document or a spec sheet. What are really the tangible outputs that come as, as a consequence of the work that you do at this level of seniority in a big tech company? I love the question because very often, if you don't answer this question early, when you take a job as a leader in a business, you could just be spinning wheels and not know what success looks like. If I were to rephrase in a leader's terminology what you just said, I think finding the metrics that you will live and die by for your success is the tangible piece that you're looking for. It may not be a product, but it's a metric that you're driving to. In some cases, it's revenue, right? In some cases, it's usage, it's users, it's number of users, it's number of new users, number of retained users you bring to the table. In some cases, it's it's health of how the product is used. We talk about especially content-based products, the health of the content could be a big metric. But I think defining early what is the metric that is the right metric to solve for becomes very important. And I say this because so many times as a leader, you chase vanity metrics. And only after a period of time, you realize that may mean nothing. If you reach the vanity metrics, it still doesn't go to the health and the core of the business. So it's a very big part of leadership getting to the right set of metrics to hold yourself accountable to. The answer may be that you don't know yet, but getting chasing to that answer of what is success is very important. Could you maybe make an example of what a vanity metric could be in practice and what a good metric could be or has been for you? Well, I'll give you a real example from Twitter in terms of this, say less vanity metric, but really this chase to get to the core truth of the right metric to anchor to. And, you know, Twitter, along with the whole industry that's digital, often used to anchor to a monthly active user number when it came to users. And so... The monthly active user number is great, but if you really push yourself, you can say, listen, the true health is if I want users to come back to the platform and the service daily. If you say that you are a, a service that has to be a daily habit or has the potential to be a daily habit, you really want to measure that more granular number. And being a publicly listed company, Twitter at some point made a transition from reporting on the monthly active users to actually going and looking at a granular number, like a daily active usage and even within that, looked at a subset of that pool which said daily active users who are monetizable. And it was a very big and scary transition, frankly, being on the inside, you sort of worry about, is that the right metric? Is it too narrow? Are we putting it out there? But it was really an amazing, amazing decision for the company to go to closer to the core truth. Now that we've talked a bit about what you bring into a company, I, of course, also want to ask what you can take away from a company and especially... What was one of the key takeaways you had from the company culture at Twitter that will stick around forever with you? Someone asked me, what's the one word you would use for Twitter as a company? And for me, the pat came, the answer was values. It's a values-based company. And it's incredible to have the opportunity to spend many years in that and discovering what the company's values are, what true values are. Do they align with your own personal values? And what happens when they do and what happens when they don't? So... For me, the time at Twitter, the one thing I take away is the ability and the understanding of what it takes to build a truly inclusive, diverse organization. Knowing that it took many years to perfect the art of continuing to try to do that. Thinking about who do you hire? How do you develop people after you hire them inside the company? How do you make sure that you're having the right data-driven conversations about promotions? How do you make everybody feel belong, whether it's about growth or not in the company? Even if they look different, if they speak different, how do you make sure they feel like this is home and this is a team and this is family? So I think that's the one thing that is incredibly valuable. It changed how I think about building teams and building a culture that I would always value from that experience. And then, of course, a very easy follow-up is, how do you do it? <laughs> what is the secret ingredient? Super easy, right? It's a it's a multi-year journey. I think you you start very much by envisioning what success looks like, even in that journey, and saying that you will evolve that goalpost from time to time. So 
starting with putting goals in mind of representation. How diverse do you want your team to look like? What percentage of your team, what percentage of your leadership, what percentage of your board do you want to look diverse? What do you mean by diverse? So I think setting goals is a, is a good first step for any organization to start thinking about inclusion. The next piece really is starting to think about building communities inside the company. So people who come in once they're hired can actually feel like they belong and feel like they belong with people who look different from them. So that creates a sense of feeling like home, feeling like their team, feeling like their company is where they belong. And then I think thinking about processes like making sure that hiring slates in interviews are diverse, making sure that promotion slates are not just based on a manager saying, I think this person should be promoted, but based on data, based on a consideration set of multiple people, including diverse candidates represented there. It's a journey. You you trigger a multi-step process, right? You do the first part, you get a bit successful with it. And you're like, great, what can I do more? How can I improve myself more? And if you think that you're done ever, that's probably the biggest fallacy in the process. You're never done. You can always do better. Tell us about this. So in recent times, th- there's been such a profound impact of people's Twitter activity, especially people who are, who are celebrities uh, and are active on Twitter. And the question that keeps coming up is, well, how do we overcome this problem of fake news? How do we overcome this problem of the of us as a civilization existing in the post-truth world? How do you see this being solved in the future? Is the future moderated? Is it going to depend on crowdsourced uh, moderation or fact-checking? How, how do you see this problem getting solved in the long term? Yeah, I think it's an interesting, if you step back and think even wider, it's an interesting unintended consequence that we have stepped into over the last few years. As a byproduct of... We want to enable a lot of user-generated content on different platforms to now being who takes ownership for that content and the veracity of that content. So that's where we sort of are. And then you have all of the elements of thinking about, you know, I, I think fundamentally there's a combination of product policy and moderation of some capacity that needs to happen to to own the veracity. But it's not easy because of the scale of content now that we all produced, right? Social media has become the way of life. You think about TikTok videos, you think about YouTube, you think about Twitter and and other content that the amount of pieces of content each one of us is generating is, is huge. But how do you differentiate between veracity of information and my point of view and my opinion? This is where the gray area lies. And my own view, my personal view is that there's a lot that companies and technologies and platforms can do in this place of moderation plus technology and machine learning and things like that. But there's also progression of human society and civilization that's needed to, one, maybe live in that ambiguity because we can't, you know, that that fine line between truths and opinion is a hard one to think about. How do we live with that ambiguity a bit? And how do we as consumers start to question what we trust and build our own models for it. And I'll give you, give you an example. My kids today are very aware when they see a piece of content come through on any one of their platforms. The first thing they'll say is, mm, do I trust it? I would never have asked that in my time looking at content. So you're already seeing civilization sort of adapt to scenarios. But I think the answer is somewhere in the middle between how much we can solve versus how much do we start to use judgment. So one question I wanted to follow up on regarding the product is how do we overcome confirmation bias? Is it a flag that just says this content is seen critical by other users? Is it providing content from a different viewpoint? How do we grab people and shake them and kind of allow them to to wake up and think about this content more critically, especially those people who right now believe that they're getting microchips injected by Bill Gates when they go for vaccine shot? I think both of the examples you mentioned are important, right? So there's a multi-pronged approach, I think, to take here. But if you step back a little bit, you know, I, I often go back to one of the big journalists, Maria Ressa in the Philippines, who did a lot of groundbreaking work thinking about digital and social content, etc. One of the things she talks about is that the more you serve up content from people who look like me in an algorithm, means that the more siloed my point of view gets, right? And this is sort of driving people of different points of view to be more and more siloed in their own type of points of view. So I think from a product perspective, there are lots of things that the industry can do in trying to overcome that. 
right? You alluded to it, which is trying to show an alternate point of view or trying to get you to discover and follow content that is a bit different. Maybe even flagging that to you and saying, would you want to consider another point of view? I think these are things that you products certainly need to try and data will tell whether adoption of these things works well or not. But this is sort of the reality of algorithmic-based serving up of content over the last many years across many tech platforms that has started to put people in more silos. I think the products can help people realizing, consumers realizing that this is happening means that they can seek out a different point of view. And this may be a little bit biased because I come from this industry, but I go out and explicitly look for newsletters, for instance, to follow in topics and areas and fields of people and society that I don't understand well enough. And I I walk away feeling empowered, less ambiguous about my knowledge of these areas. But will everybody behave like that? I, I hope, I aspire to see us as society evolve to such things. The fact that my kids now don't take anything for granted when they see as content is progress. So if we can say, what is your curated feed of information that you don't know anything about? I'd like for that to be a thing uh, amongst us in society. So I think it's two ways. Your product has to work to create discovery, but I think human beings have to work to create that discovery and break the silo as well. You just said data will tell how that works out. And I wonder what if data tells us that we actually like to stay within a bubble, that I like cooking receipts and I want to see lots more of them and not something regarding politics. It is very likely it could happen, right? And so that means product has to work harder to find different ways of breaking that silo. And it means the job's not done. (laughs) And it means that think tanks and thought leaders in, in the world have an opportunity to be able to create and educate people on why it's important to have awareness of an alternate point of view. I always think technology alone cannot solve everything. Technology mixed with people and humans can solve more, can be more effective. I don't want to bludgeon this point any further, but it's just such an interesting discussion. You mentioned that your children, for instance, are um, deliberately ambiguous about whether the content that they're consuming online is accurate or not. And then they want to go ahead and do some fact checking. And you feel that maybe society has to adapt to live in this gray area where you see something, maybe it's not uh, the truth, and then you go ahead, verify it independently. I feel that you have a little bit of a selection bias over here because you're talking about your children, you're talking about your family, and you come from a privileged uh, background. But there are a lot of people who don't have uh, the intellectual faculties or maybe even the time to be able to perform this independent verification. Having said that, if that is a majority of our population, don't you think the picture of the future that you're painting is extremely dystopian where people are exposed to a lot of inaccurate information? Look, I think you're absolutely right. There's selection bias there. It's certainly by no means a statistically significant piece. It's more an indication of a trajectory of how people are evolving. And it may not necessarily be everybody today. The good parts about this is that people are being thoughtful or there is a potential for society to be thoughtful about what they consume and not assume that the thing that's put in front of them is what it is. The downside of this in your dystopian description of it is true that maybe we become less trusting as a culture. What does that do to the notion of trust, to the emotion of trust? Maybe the foundation of trust erodes, right? And so it isn't something I say lightly as if this is how it will be. I I say this more pragmatically as where I see things going. But is it a challenge for humanity? Absolutely. I'd love to find us a simpler way of doing this, but Look, we spend a majority of our time in the digital world now, and these are today's realities we're dealing with. So is there room for us to to get us out of this world where there's a burden of trying to assess what is right and what is wrong? Yes. Is there a need to be thoughtful? And is there an opportunity to be thoughtful about what you engage in and what content you are curating for yourself? Yes. Today's answer is that there is an opportunity to thoughtfully make sure that you are curating more uh, options and points of view for you. So the big follow-up question I have right now is how do you create trust in digital ecosystems? Trust in digital ecosystems has been an amazing project that has evolved on many digital platforms for many, many uh, years, actually many decades. 
Think about the notion of Google reviews or Yelp reviews, or think about the notion of TripAdvisor ratings and reviews. So this has been the first wave or the first notions of trust. Today, it's very hard to get someone to actually go to a restaurant without checking a rating and validating that there is a crowdsourced opinion. You start to see many layers of these sort of reviews and ratings start to come up. The app store reviews and ratings are there too. So I think this word of mouth equivalent has translated into trust platforms in the digital world. And the rendition of what trust platforms are is evolving, right? You're getting more and more sophisticated with, you know, I used to have to look at a TripAdvisor rating and then come down to a box that said, is it family friendly? Is it vegetarian supportive? That I subscribe to both those boxes. And so I'd have to do it that way, but now it's becoming more sophisticated. Data about me is much more known and therefore predictively, I would get reviews and ratings that are more meant for me and my interests and my tastes. So same fundamental concept, but the rendition of it is becoming more sophisticated across places. Then you start to see platforms giving users the option to say flags that say not sure if that's really true or validated by other people in this space or fact checked by media journalists who you would who you would support so similar concept as everything in the ratings and reviews world but adapted to to today's sort of more sophisticated internet presence i think okay so let's for now, move on to the toolbox section, which is also the last part of this episode. What is one book that you think everybody should read? I have names of books to give you, but I actually don't want to answer it that way. Sorry. I think that everybody should try serendipity reading. This is a name that, that I've totally made up, first off. Serendipity reading means that you walk into a store and you pick up a book that you just normally wouldn't read. You can judge it by its cover. You can judge it by its topic but it's something that you wouldn't read. And to me, this has been the most fascinating way to discover books in topics that I would never read about. I discovered a book about refugees and I absolutely fell in love with it and thought for months about what the world of refugees could do and how that might connect to climate migration or other things. So it really opens up the mind. And so rather than one book, I would say, go and do some serendipity reading. Pick a book you would never read or just pick a book you don't know. We haven't seen that answer to this question on this podcast yet. That's interesting. Okay, uh, tell us one app that everybody should download. Ooh, it's a tough one. It's a very personal choice. I think everybody should have a meditation app. I use a fairly simple one called as an insight timer. And the reason I like that app is because it gives very wide types of meditation from the traditional music-based and guided meditations to people reading poetry and, and things like that. So I like that one. But whether it's Insight Timer or it's others, I think everybody needs a little bit of meditation and holistic thinking in their life. And what is one podcast you love listening to? Lex Friedman's podcast. Totally geek out on Lex Friedman. Everything Lex Friedman puts out there just goes back to, you know, making up for the fact that I went from depth to breadth very early in my career. The way I make up for that is by geeking out on Lex Friedman's podcast. Tell us a routine that you follow. Well, I have a, a check-in on a weekly basis. It's not a daily routine, but a weekly routine. For me, I think my way of decompressing and relaxing is to go and spend time in the garden with the plants. I'm an urban farmer. And the, the thing that it has taught me is patience. It's taught me relaxing. It's turning off an overthinking brain, which I can't survive the next week if I don't get a little bit of that downtime. And now the very last question for today. Who is an innovator with international roots that everybody should know? Fantastic question. In the last few years, I've invested in a lot of founders and, and as an angel investor in tech and in sustainability. And I went back and thought about how many of those were innovators with foreign roots. And I want to say 80% of them are. And I had never thought about it like that. There's lots of them. I can tell you a few that I, that I really like. But I think more importantly, this piece about foreign founders or foreign roots is interesting because maybe they are looking at a problem and an opportunity set or a market in a different way that someone may have taken for granted in their own market. So I'll leave it at that. But I, I, I love the question. I'm not answering your question, but I love the question. Okay, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks a lot, Maya. It was a privilege to have you over. Strajit and Anne, it was absolutely awesome to be here. Thank you for having me. 
The Mostly Awesome podcast is brought to you by CDTM, the Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork together with Annabel Schäfer, Frederik Junge, Kai Kirsch, and Julia Kroslovskaya. If you like our podcast and you would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you're listening on and tell your friends about Mostly Awesome. We would like to invite inspiring guests with diverse cultural backgrounds to our podcast. Our inbox, podcast at cdtm.de, is always open for your feedback or any warm intros. Thanks for tuning in and see you in two weeks or talk to you in two weeks.